We are continuing on in this study of the book of Revelation. We're, we're jumping now to the third letter in the seven letters to the churches. And, and each week we are seeking to just remember what, what the, who, who the Lord is and what he called us to. We're seeking to hear because of who we know him to be. We're seeking to hear his commendation of the church. What does he approve of? What does he celebrate in church? What does he complain against or condemn? What, what are his complaints against the church? What is a church needing to repent of? What does he call the church to? And then what does he commit to the church? And, and that we're listening for those things because he is our Lord. He is the God who is over all of history. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the, and the first and the last. So, so these words are vital for us as we live in this time. And so we've been studying this and each week we're trying to draw out a principle that we don't just say, hey, look at this great church or look at this terrible church. We, we seek to see in light of where we're at, who we are, what would Jesus have to say about us. And the truth is, is that um, there are ways in which we're probably not, not exactly like any one of these churches, but there are ways that we have strengths and there are ways that we need to continue to grow in uh, light of his truth. And so, so each week we're doing that. For example, the first week was to the church of Ephesus in which the, the, the point or the summation of that week was good works and good doctrine are necessary in the church, but not sufficient for the church. A word-centered church that lacks love will receive judgment, not reward. So that church had kind of become a center of academic, like it was just a cold, dead academia, right? It's all it was. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't loving the Lord. It wasn't loving uh, his, his people. It wasn't loving the mission that he'd left for us. They'd lost their love. And as a result, they had just become cold, dead academics. Um, then to the church at Smyrna, he writes, The enemy will lead you to believe you're destitute and defeated, but our Lord's eternal perspective is far more trustworthy so we can endure fearlessly and faith, faith, faithfully. And he had nothing negative to say to the church at Smyrna. They were a suffering church. They had endured great persecution, but were also going to be enduring more. And they weren't called to run away from it or hide from it, but to be faithful and fearless in the, faith, in the face of it. And this morning we're turning to, uh, to the third letter, to the church in Pergamum. And in many ways, it's the, it's the opposite of the church in Ephesus, where Ephesus had become academic and cold in its pursuit of doctrine. Pergamum, we're going to see, begins to reflect or look more like the culture than it does the Christ that saved them. And so he's going to commend them offer some complaints against them, call them to something, and then commit to them. And that's what we're going to be studying. So let's read it. We'll pray for the Lord's guidance, for his presence with us, and then we'll dig in. Revelation 2, chapter 12, or chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Already, I, I don't like to interrupt these moments, but already I just want you to recognize this is a different Jesus than our culture likes to a different picture, a different expression of Jesus than our culture likes to, to consider. He is the lamb that was slain, but he is the lion of Judah. Don't miss this point. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give you some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except, those, except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that in this time, your Spirit would guide us. Lead us into truth, teach us, point us to Christ, help us to see what you intend to be said to this church. Not, not, this, not just this ancient church, although we don't want to dismiss that, but what would you say to us in light of what you said to that church? Help us now, I pray. Give us ears to hear so that we can respond to this call. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Each week we're starting with the principle, the, the summation, and this is me trying to, the best I can, summarize the, the, the message behind uh, these, these letters or the point of each of these letters. And I recognize there's some ways I'm going to miss this and some ways I'm going to maybe overemphasize or underemphasize, but, but I think that these faithfully represent what Jesus is saying to each of these churches. This week, the, the summation or the the summary of it that we'll see work out as we work through the text is this. A faithful witness must be ready to die well and must also endure to live well, avoiding the stumbling blocks of cultural compromise inspired by false teachers. A faithful witness must be ready to die well and must also endure to live well, avoiding the stumbling blocks of cultural compromise inspired by false teachers. We live in a world that is deceived, that lives in step with and, in, and deceived by the influence of Satan's lies. At one point in our lives, we would have been enslaved to it, right? Like this, was, Paul speaks of being uh, bound to the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air, that there's a way in which we would have been enslaved to these things, that we would have had no power over them. We would have never been able to discern or distinguish between what's true and what's a lie that we would have been so convinced of the lies that we would give ourselves to them, fight for them, argue for them, divide with people over them. But they're still lies. Still not true. In fact, it happens all around us all the time. But having come to faith, having been made regenerate, been blood-bought, spirit-born uh, spirit followers of Jesus Christ, everything changes. We were freed from the bondage that we were once enslaved to. We were, we, we were given eyes that could see that we were once blind but now can see. We once couldn't hear. We once didn't have ears to hear but now have ears to hear. And that's why Jesus closes every one of these letters with that call. He who has ears. The one who's been given ears. The one who's now able to hear. Listen. Pay attention. Don't no, 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 just hear it but respond faithfully to it. The influence of Satan lies, they, 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 they can now plague us. Like they can still be a struggle for us. They can still cause us trouble, but they don't rule over us. We're not bound to them. We're not enslaved to them any longer. In one sense, they plague us because, well, we can at times be deceived. Right? These things can become stumbling blocks for us. They can trip us up. They can cause us trouble 
we can react poorly in the midst of circumstances until it, we... I mean, oh, man, I'm going to be very careful here. But let's think about the ways that we react to cultural issues. When, when the wrong president gets elected or when the, when the wrong decisions made by the uh, Supreme Court, what do we often do? Oh, the sky is falling. It's the end. We're going to lose America. Right? We, 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 we get ruled by fear. And then the mission becomes, well, let's get the right people on the Supreme Court to make the right decisions. And then the mission becomes, get rid of this president so we can get this president. Or we can get so convinced of the lies of the enemy that we begin to deny that God has said something is immoral. And we begin to question, I think it might actually be okay. That we can begin to hold a, a view that's more like the world than what God's word would suggest. In, in another sense, they plague us, not so much because we get deceived by them or because we get kind of intertwined and tied up in them, but because to hold a different perspective than the rest of the world is costly. You might get rejected. You might lose a job. You might, you might actually have to pay with your life. It, it, it sets us at odds with the world in many cases. So that now, if you hold a biblical sexual ethic as the right biblical, uh, as the right sexual ethic, then you're homophobe, you're transphobe, you're xenophobe, you're, you're afraid of something. Like that's the label being applied and it might just be, I love people enough, I long for them to live in light of the truth of God's word. I'm not afraid of anything in that regard. I'm not against them in any way. I'd long for Everyone in those, they're bound up in those things to come to see and know and understand the truth of God's glory and goodness and His grace that they could be freed from their lives. But that is a costly stance to take in today's culture. We get rejected to the point that even in this church there's been moments where we've encouraged single people to remain living and acting as if they're single till the day they're married. And when they can't live up to that, they, rather than walk with us in the difficulty of it and hearing the call to the right way of life, we've seen people leave because of it. It's a costly way to live. We're having to learn a lesson that most Christians in the world have known since the moment that they stepped into and began to profess faith. There is no neutral ground to stand on. There, there is no way in which we can stand in the light and in the darkness at the same time. There's no way that we can claim fellowship with God and fellowship with the world at the same time. There is no neutral ground. We live in a world, we, we are behind enemy lines. We are not in the new heavens and the new earth. We are in living in a time and place that is fading away, that will be destroyed, that will be put away. That's the whole, the whole movement and flow of Revelation is to show us that there's something better coming, but it's not here yet. 
But we've been plagued with this idea that we can live in this world and enjoy everything it has to offer as if there's not certain things we should reject. Many things we should reject. Don't misunderstand. I, I, I don't want to dismiss the fact that there's plenty of places in the Scripture that demonstrate that we can enjoy the abundance and glory and goodness that God has provided in His creation. Like the, the ways that we can appreciate and enjoy the beauty of what He's created. I'm a mountain guy, so I walk out into the mountains. I can't help but be astonished by the beauty to taste the food that, that God has provided through His creation. Man, there's very few things that beat a a well-cooked steak, right? Like, that's so good. But I can enjoy too much of it, right? It's right to have it in moderation. Maybe you're a beach person. You walk out onto the beach and, and you see the glory of God's powerful creation as you look at the immensity of the ocean in front of you. Maybe you're a vegetarian and you just love the way broccoli tastes on a Sunday morning. You know, I don't know. That's not me, but I don't know why broccoli's the thing that came to mind. But I mean, but even that, we can give ourselves too much to it. We can always live for the day in the mountains. We can always give ourselves to the pursuit of being at the beach. <clears throat> There's certain things we can redeem. There's ways in which we can live in this world and 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 take hold of things that the the world celebrates. And we can redeem. That's why every year there's this discussion around October 31st around whether or not Christians should participate in Halloween or not. Should you? Shouldn't you? You shouldn't? You should? There's all this discussion. There are ways in which things like this can be redeemed. It can be received. It can be participated in without in any way partnering together or standing in step or walking in step with the pagan idolatry or the pagan ritual. But there are certain things that must just flatly be rejected so it's, because it so clearly stands against the glory of God and His word for His people. Certainly there are things that must be rejected. There are certain things we can't do to the glory of God. We cannot enter into sexual immorality to the glory of God. So, so, so we, we can't enter into... Uh, um, uh, uh, what's the word when you overeat? Gosh, when you eat too much. Come on, tell me. Huh? Gluttony. Thank you. You're listening. That's good. I don't know why that word left me. We, we can't enter into any form of idolatry, heart idolatry. Not, not just the creation of an idol and, and, a, and a statue that we go and bow to and burn incense before and sacrifice food before. It was the craziest thing. The first time I was into China, the first time I went into China, we ended up in a Buddhist temple and I'm watching fathers train their sons in the, in the practice of prayer to these golden statues of Buddha. What a stark reminder of why we went to begin with. And I could stand there and watch and I could look on and I could see and I could actually feel and, and extend and have compassion upon these people that are so blind and deceived that they think that praying to a golden statue brings power. But there's no way I could stand there and join them in those prayers. So there's certain things we must reject. A faithful witness must be ready to die well and must also endure to live well. 
avoiding the stumbling blocks of cultural compromise inspired by false teachers. I think this is the whole point of what's happening at Pergamum. The whole idea here. As he commends them and then complains against them, I think this, this becomes extremely clear. And Jesus' commendation for the church in Pergamum is what? This faithful witness in, in a very dark place. This, this faithful witness. You won't, you won't denounce my name. You won't deny my faith. Even though you live where Satan lives. Even though you live where Satan's throne is. It's interesting because when you put this next to the previous two, two letters, the first letter to Ephesus was, I know your works. The second letter to, to the church in Smyrna is, I know your uh, tribulation. I know the situation you're enduring. And here he says, I know where you are. It's not just about the circumstance. I know right where you are. You're in the place where Satan dwells, where his throne is. You don't deny my name even when it is apparently very costly. I mean, you did this even when you knew you could die for it, which is evidenced by Antipas. It's so vital that we pick up on this. He says, Antipas, Antipas, my faithful witness. It's a title that was assigned to Jesus, the, the faithful witness in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. That Jesus, let me just flip over there and read it to you just real fast. Just hear this. It says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins and, and made us a kingdom of priests. I might have passed it. There it is. Sorry, at the beginning of verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and freed us to, from him, from our sins by his blood. The, the idea here is that Antipas is reflective of Christ. He so looks like Christ that his life cost him his life. He's so reflective of Christ that the, the glory of God the Father, the, the good things that God's called him to, the, the way in which he lived led to his death. It's exactly what happened to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame. He, he, he lived a life that demanded his death. This is what it looks like to be a faithful witness. And in so many ways they were doing it. In so many ways that they were after this, they wouldn't deny the reality of the gospel. They wouldn't deny the fact that they were sinners. They wouldn't deny the fact that, that they needed Jesus to die in their place and for their sins. They wouldn't deny his name. They wouldn't join with Pergamum in a celebration and pagan worship. They wouldn't join in the proclamation Caesar is Lord. And that's a costly way to live. It's evidenced among them. So Pergamum, Pergamum was, was, a, was a affluent, influential, politically and influential religious, uh, influential religiously. It was a city of renown. It was, it was a place of power. It was a political center. So Jesus says, this is where Satan's throne is. This is where his, he, he, he lives. And, and, and though there likely wasn't a literal throne to Satan, that we, at least that we know of, his influence was absolutely clear. It was clear in the fact that they celebrated the fact that they were the first city. They referred to themselves as the um, temple guard 
for Caesar worship or for emperor worship in Rome. There was a temple there. It was the first temple in that area built. And they, they relished the fact that they had that privilege to be the first temple in the whole region built to, to celebrate and to venerate a, a Caesar. There's temples, all kinds of pagan temples. A temple to Zeus set on top of the hill looking over the city. There was a temple to Asclepius who who was a a god of healing called Savior because they believed she would save the lives of people. Temples to Athene, Demeter, Dionysus. It's it's actually kind of interesting because these names have faded. As we hear them, they faded off into what we would call mythology. But they were real and powerful names in that culture. People were giving their lives to the devotion and to worship of these, of these beings we considered myths. These made up mythological gods. Behind it all was Satan. It was his influence. And these people recognized there was something wrong with that. They wouldn't join with it. They wouldn't engage in it. But something was happening in the church that Jesus couldn't stand for, couldn't be silent about. So he brings this complaint against the church in Pergamum. Actually, he doesn't just bring one. He says, I have a few things against you. I got this one thing for you. You didn't deny my name. You don't deny my name, but I've got this thing. I've got these things against you. And then he goes into speaking about the way that they tolerate false teaching and they themselves are tending towards cultural compromise. They're tending towards, they're tolerating false teaching. This is something that Ephesus was so strong on. You won't even listen. You won't even give them a place. You hate the, the work of the Nicolaitans. But here, they're beginning to listen. You've got some that are holding to the teaching of Balaam. You've got some that are listening to the, to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They're tolerating false teachers. Paul, John, Peter, they'd all warned against him. Jesus warned against these false teachers. He, he knew that the, the whole history of the church would be plagued by the reality of teachers out there teaching something that wasn't true to deceive and, 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 and destroy his work. He's constantly warning. They were constantly being reminded. He himself faced off with the falsest of false teachers. Maybe we don't think about it this way often, but here's, here's the serpent meets Jesus in the wilderness and begins to tempt him. Oh, you could, you could make bread. You're, you look hungry. You, you could make bread out of these stones. And what does Jesus do? He responds with the word. Oh, hey, if you will bow to me, I will, I will give you everything your eye can see. What does Jesus do? We only worship God. Takes him to the top. You, you could throw yourself off, and if you are who you say you are, then, then God's angels will protect you. You, you. you won't be harmed. What does Jesus do? He answers with the word, and he reminds them that we're not to put God to the test. This is what false teachers do. They, they introduce the idea, some, some false idea, some false truth that's built out of and twisted together with some truth. In our culture, I think we immediately begin to think about false teachers in the sense of prosperity gospel teachers. I think that's the quickest. That, that if, if I were to ask you, what's the, who, who's a false teacher? I, I think the names that would get thrown out are, 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 are like the, the Benny Hens, the Joel Osteens, the, 
The, I, I mean, there's a whole list of them. If you want to know who they are, just turn on TBN. Maybe that would be a place to start. And, and I, don't, I, I don't deny that there's a false teaching in that way. They, they, they have decided that, that, that you know what, if, if, you ha- if you have enough faith, which is always proven by you sending enough money to me, that your life will be better. If you just have enough faith, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And, and you'll know you have enough faith because you can send me money and you're not struggling and having problems. The people in Pergamum already know better. They already, they've already experienced something that they, they know better than that. We, we hold to the truth and, and we may actually die for it. We, we won't denounce Jesus' name and we may actually die for it. We, we don't denounce the gospel and we may die for it. They already know better that suffering is part of the process, that suffering is something that occurs in the life of believers as we wait on the Lord, as we patiently endure, looking forward to his second coming. But these false teachers, what they tend to do is they begin to, to draw on the promises of God and over-realize them in this life. And they say, oh, you're going to have heaven on earth. Let me say that a little differently. They say that you're going to have the new heavens and the new earth and the fading, dying earth. You're going to experience eternity here and now. And then we get a glimpse of it. We get the dawn breaking over the, 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 the horizon. We get moments of joy and peace that passes understanding, but we don't get the fullness of it. We don't grasp hold of the whole thing. But these aren't the only false gospels that are out there. There are social gospels that focus on the fact that we're going to eradicate poverty in the world. Well, Jesus said you're always going to have the poor with you. Are we going to eradicate poverty in the world? Not in this one. But in the one to come, Jesus will put poverty away. His people will be rich. Uh, There's a political gospel. This is the one I press on all the time because I I stand in front of a church that, that wrestles and I get it. I feel it in my own heart. We wrestle with this. We have so, so combined and so solidified the idea of political positions in America with Christian religion. And I do think they have some overlap. But they are not the gospel. Our president is not our savior. And he is not Satan himself. And that really depends on which side of the aisle you end up sitting on. Jesus alone in his eternal kingdom is the only one that will stand forever, period. Anything else is a false gospel. It's an overrealization, thinking that we can accomplish something on this earth that he will do and complete in his consummating work. That's one form of false teacher, a person who overrealizes the eternal promise of God in the current age. But that's not the only kind. Paul actually calls out a type of false teacher that I think we might also be prone to in this church. People who appear to be very conservative, who, who appear to know and understand the word, who appear to, to have a, a life that exhibits godliness but then who turn around and apply a law to every person that you must be like me. You must make this social decision. You must educate your children this way. You must do these things to be considered a godly person. 
Some of those things are, are applications of wisdom. Some of those things are absolutely it's unwise to, to give into, and, 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 and it's unwise to practice certain things in our world, but they are not laws that we all must live by and that we attain our righteousness or our acceptance before God because of. Can we talk about and debate and discuss actions that are wise and unwise? Absolutely. But as soon as we make a law from them, and begin to measure our own righteousness against those of our brothers and sisters and call brothers and sisters who don't see things like us wolves, then we might be being deceived by a wolf. But it seems like Jesus has another style of false teaching. Paul confronted that type of false teacher in Galatia. Let me just highlight this more, a bit more specifically. When, when Paul is writing to the, 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 to the people in Galatia, he's writing to a people who are being bewitched by people who said, you must take the law of the old covenant and apply it to your life to be acceptable to God. Yeah, Jesus is good, but you need Jesus plus something else. You need Jesus plus the law. You need Jesus plus food laws. You need Jesus plus circumcision. You need Jesus plus something. That's a false teacher. The true gospel is you need Jesus, period. As soon as you add something to that, you've undermined his gospel. And there's plenty of false teachers that do that. But it seems that Jesus has another style of false teacher in mind here. It's not that these other false teachers aren't dangerous, but it seems that he has another false teacher in mind here. He calls them out specifically. He says that you have some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam. And here's where, here's where it gets rough because all of a sudden, ba- ba- Balaam is a guy, so if you, you can go read the story of, of Balaam, it's no, uh, Numbers 22 through 24 and into 25, and then he gets referenced again, I think, in Numbers 31. But Balaam's a guy who was hired by Balak to curse the Israelites. So Balaam is, ba- Balak is the king of Moab, and, and Moab has heard, the, the people of Moab have heard what God is doing through the Israelites as they move across the desert to, towards the promised land. And Balak's like, I don't want any part of that. I want to protect my people. I'm going to go hire somebody to curse them and bring curses on them. And so Balak hires Balaam, and Balaam's like, hey, I can only curse those who God allows me to curse. I just want you to know that up front. And Balak's like, ah, just go curse them. And every time he tries, God doesn't allow him to curse them. And in fact, it actually comes out as a blessing. And the people of uh, Israel is blessed by God. And so Balaam comes up with this plan and he gives it to Balak. Hey, I can't curse them, but let me, let, let me let you in on a little secret. They can bring a curse on themselves. Get them to practice sexual immorality and, and, and pagan rituals, idol worship. And they can bring, they will bring a curse on themselves. And God did actually judge them as a result. 24,000 people died as a result of God's judgment against their compromising. Against their, that Balaam was right. People are going to be misled. People are going to participate in these, in these pagan rituals. People are going to enter into sexual immorality. People are going to give themselves to it. And God's going to bring judgment. They're going to bring a curse on themselves. 24,000 people. We don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans were about. We know very little, and there's lots of conjecture, and there's lots of people out there that will tell you they know exactly what's happening with the Nicolaitans. And those that sound the most convinced, I would just encourage you to not listen to them because we don't know. It seems, it seems, and this is my opinion, 
that they were in the same step, or they were in step with Balaam's teaching, is that they were seeking to deceive God's people to say things along the lines of, hey, you've been given God's grace, and that grace is sufficient, so you can just continue to live in sin. God's grace is enough. To which we know Paul says, absolutely not, by no means, that's not acceptable. If you've got his grace, live like it. If you've got his grace and you've been made holy by his grace, act like you're holy because of his grace. If you've been given his grace as a gift, act like you appreciate his grace in the way you live and work. That's the whole idea. But it seems that there's this idea that, oh, well, we can, we've got God's grace. That's sufficient, and I don't have to really try. And you hear that a lot of times in people's speech about, well, we're all sinners. You know, God's kind of accepting all of us as sinners. And so I really don't have to try that hard to fight against my sin. That's a lie. You know, the pursuit of holiness, that's, that's not necessary because salvation is by grace, not by works. Absolutely, salvation is by grace, not by works. But the call on the saved is to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been given. The pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of righteousness is to live in step with what God has said is true about us. Not to earn it, not to take hold of it ourselves, not to, not to say that we deserve it but to simply begin to practice the things that he said are already true. It seems as if the ba- those holding to the teaching of Balaam and the, and the teaching of the Nicolaitans, it seems as if they're in this same stride that, hey, God's grace, you got God's grace, you can kind of go do what you want to do. And they begin to compromise. So they tolerate this false teaching that then lends itself, them tending toward cultural compromise. Specifically calling out sexual ethics and idolatry. So they live in a place where there are pagan temples everywhere. Everywhere they turn. There's emperor worship. There's Greek mythology worship, which at that time wouldn't have been called mythology. That's us today. I wonder how long it takes for God to just become a myth. Think about that. What happens for God to absolutely become a myth to the world we live in? I think when Christians compromise so much that we don't act like it's true, why would anybody believe it's anything other than a myth? Sorry, that's beside the point, but this, this compromise, beginning to act on this idolatrous worship that they would go into and participate in, eating in these temples. I told you about the first time that I went into China. One of the first things I saw was this Buddhist temple. They're lighting incense and they're sticking it in... Um, this, this uh, altar that sat out in front of this golden statue. But then we went into the villages that we were distributing stuff out into, and every village had these shrines to the ancestors of these villagers. And they would always come and they'd put their rice, they'd put bowls of rice in front of these sacrifices. And I don't know what in the world happened to the rice, but people would say it was there and then it's gone. Maybe animals eat it, or maybe there's people coming along and eating the rice. Participating in this idolatrous worship or sexual immorality. Every one of these pagan temples, temple prostitutes was the norm. Orgies and sexual immorality all around. Anything that's outside the biblical sexual ethic of between 
a, a husband and a wife. Now, there's lots of room inside of that marriage relationship. But anything outside of that is unacceptable and is a participation and is a cultural compromise. They're being tested on that. They're being pressed for it. To not join in in a place where pagan idolatry and emperor worship was such a central function of the city. It sets them apart. It becomes a costly thing that they become isolated. I mean, imagine what it's like to live in that place. Maybe we don't have to try that hard. Maybe there's a number of ways that we still feel that and maybe are increasingly feeling that in our own culture. I've had people I care about quit talking to me because I will not accept homosexuality as a God-ordained way of life. I've had family members that have treated me poorly because I've loved them enough to say that that is sin. I've had friends betray me because I would seek to honor marriage and call them to reconciliation even though culturally this is a, this is a good reason to get divorced. It's not an easy thing to do. So I, I, I don't want to point to myself and say I got it all figured out because there's so many ways that I feel this pressure. I don't want to pretend that I've got something down and, and, and that I'd be the antipest willing to die for my faith. And that, don't, don't, don't misunderstand why I'm saying this. I'm just saying because I kind of understand what I'm asking of you. Of people who I would long to stand alongside of as faithful witnesses. But the reality is, I think at some level, we don't even have to go to these big ones, right? These big cultural struggles we're facing with, with sexual ethics and um, uh, gender conversations. Those, those are kind of low-hanging fruit. They're the, the topic of conversation in so many places. Maybe there's others that we're compromising on that we've kind of grown used to. So I thought about Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. We offered it as an equip class a few, a, a couple of terms ago. And I just opened to the table of contents, and I thought, well, that's, that's one. That's another one. Gosh, that's another one. So I just thought I'd bring some to maybe highlight some ways in which we might be tending towards cultural compromise without even recognizing it. Marriage. Not our church so much, but I, uh, broadly speaking, the church doesn't seem that, that marriage has the high and honorable place it should. And then in other parts of the church, it's so elevated that, that single people are made to believe that they're less worthy or less acceptable to God if they're not married. Emotional health. I want to be very careful about this because I recognize that our brains and our bodies are physical things that can fail and do fail and don't work the way they're intended to because we live in a fallen world. But does it say something about the church in America today that we are as anxious and depressed as the culture we live in? Does it say something about the church today that we don't rejoice over the things that we're given to rejoice over and we dwell on all the hardships 
Does it say something about the church of America today that we are not a people known for a peace that passes understanding? That we are arguing and fighting and divided? How about lack of self-control? He calls that out, a lack of self-control. It's a lacking of a fruit of the Spirit that actually enables you to practice and apply all the other fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and self-control kind of becomes the function that enables us to express all of these others. Discontentment. Is it possible that the, that the American church has been so quick to run to prosperity gospel preachers and even receive portions of it within the church that we count successful as big and wealthy and rich? Simply because we're not content with the glory of Christ and the goodness of our Savior, regardless of the circumstance. I mean, beneath every one of these things, and there's more, I could have gone through that whole table of contents, but beneath every one of these things are lies that we've been told and that to some degree have believed are true. In what ways, these are questions I would just ask you to consider, in what ways has the American church begun to reflect or mirror the culture that we live in more than the Christ who saved us? Let me ask the question again. In what ways has the American church begun to reflect or mirror the culture we live in more than the Christ who has saved us? Has the American church maintained an identity as a faithful witness, the same title given to Jesus? The faithful witness, the one that was faithful in his life that led to his death. But let's make that question a bit more personal, bring it in a little bit more close to home. In what ways have we at the way possibly begun to reflect the world around us more than the Christ that saved us? In what ways have we at the way, at this church, begun to reflect the world around us more than the Christ that saved us? Is it possible that we've got some of the big things right, but we're still tending towards cultural compromise and some of the things that we've just grown seemingly immune to or that we've counted as respectable or we've given a nice name to or justified in our own minds and hearts because we got the big ones right. We're politically conservative, right? We're, we're against abortion. We teach a, a biblical sexual ethic. We don't compromise in any way on those things. But is our life given to a radical generosity and love for one another that reflects what Christ has done for us more than the world building its own kingdom and establishing its own comforts? Who do we look like? Who do we reflect? That, that's, I think, at the heart of the whole thing is it was where are we at in this? Not, not what's wrong with the church in Pergamum, although they had their problems. It's clear they had their problems. Why did Jesus ensure that we all got to hear these letters so that we could see, are these things at work in us? And so we actually have to press this question one step deeper. Because if we are going to be something as a church, it requires each of us as members of the church. If you'll notice, Jesus doesn't bring this complaint against the whole church directly. There are some among you who have tolerated false teachers. There are some among you who are tending towards these, this cultural compromise. So in what ways have you possibly begun to reflect 
the culture that we live in more than the Christ that saved us. And that leads us to Jesus' call. What does he call this church that has some? He calls them to repentance. Repent. Stop stumbling over the stumbling blocks. Identify the stumbling blocks. Look at them. See them. Respond to them. And the only right response is repentance. Avoid them. Turn from them. Quit listening to them. Quit giving them any kind of credence. In fact, he uses the word in this passage, conquer them. But if we're not careful, we're going to think that that means we're supposed to go out there and beat these false teachers down and shut them up and silence them and maybe put them away ourselves. He's not calling us to conquer the world and its false teachers. He's calling us to conquer, to repent and conquer the desire to believe those things in our own hearts. Conquer it within yourself. This is not a call to go to war. It's a call not to give in to the war that's already raging. Conquer it within yourself. Live in repentance of these lies. We've been influenced by these lies. Everywhere we turn, we're influenced by these lies. The world is speaking to us, and we're, we're even bringing it into our own houses. We're listening to it, and we're taking it in. Are we living in repentance of it? Are we recognizing the lie of it and, and applying the truth to it? Are we, like he in the desert, facing off against Satan, able to speak truth to the lie? It's shocking and maybe even surprising to us that he doesn't tell them to move. Hey, here's an easy solution. Leave the place where Satan's throne is. How are you going to do that? He is the prince of the power of the air. The one at work in the sons of disobedience, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. How are you going to leave a place in which he has been given authority? How do you get out of that place? He didn't call Pergamum a place where Satan dwells or where Satan's throne is, but he did, he did point out that Satan has a synagogue there. Where are you going to go? Well, I'm just going to isolate myself off in the woods. And I mean, there's a part of me that wants to do that so badly, right? Like, this would be so easy just to walk. I, I've, I've dreamed of the day that Amy says, okay, let's go. And we just walk off into the mountains and we never come out. That's probably not ever going to happen. <laughs> probably never going to happen. But when we got married, we went on, a, on our honeymoon to Smoky Mountains, and I came across this book in a visitor center in, in, at one of the trails, and it was a, a story of a man who just walked off in the mountains. I was like, that's so appealing. I don't know why. We just got married, too. It's crazy. I did ask her to go with me. It wasn't like I was wanting to go by myself, but he doesn't tell him to move. He's calling them to a life of conquering the lies, of standing in opposition to them. To live in such a way that we might each have to be Antipas. Now, we don't have to live with that fear. I recognize that, that we're living in a place right now that we're not likely going to die. Right? You're not likely going to be walked out onto a beach and and your throat slit because you will not deny the name of Jesus. But what will it cost you to not deny the name of Jesus? Or to live in such a way that you actually believe what he says is true and that you trust that his word is right. And that to live in such a way that his righteousness, his rightness is exhibited in your life. What will it cost you? It will come at a cost. Church discipline. I I think it's not explicit here. but, But I think he calls them to church discipline. I... It's so clear. He he says to them, look, repent of these things. 
And I'm going to come and war against those who don't, right? Like he's not saying I'm going to war against you. He says I'm going to war against them, the false teachers and those who are giving into cultural compromise. The loving thing to do, brother and sister, in this season, when we're worried about the king of heaven coming with the sword of his word, this coming out of his mouth, the double-edged sword that's used as a weapon to bring judgment and condemnation, the loving thing to do is look at our brothers and sisters and disciple and discipline them. Two, two sides of the same exact coin. Discipleship and discipline hand in hand. The di- discipleship, it, just to, to, to make it as specific as possible, discipleship being that moment where we're walking together and it's easy. And discipline beginning as soon as one of us becomes unrepentant in some area of our lives. So we see one another sinning and we go to one another and say, that is not the way. Cultural compromise is not the way. You're not going to win people by cultural compromise. You may be facing God's judgment because of cultural compromise. I love you too much. So repent. Doing again the exact thing that Jesus is doing in this passage. Repent. Loving one another enough to call one another to the very thing he calls us to. And as soon as that pursuit of repentance in all of life that is an expression of our faith in him breaks down. We move towards discipline, not punishment, not, not punitive action, not, not I'm going to make you pay, but because I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm going to walk alongside you to see you come back to the truth. So Jesus calling the church in Pergamum is repent, it, conquer these things. It, it, don't, don't get up and move, but conquer these things, and then to discipline one another, disciple one another, to avoid his commitments to the church and enjoy the 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 commitments to the church which is this first and foremost judgment for false teachers and their followers i am coming and i will make war against them is that frightening in any way i don't think it has to be for us but is there anybody we love enough that we would say these are the things that Jesus will war against. I care too deeply about you to let you continue in such a way that's going to bring, that that makes you his enemy. I will make war with them. That's why I don't think as he calls us to conquer, I don't think he's calling us to conquer these people. I think he's calling us to conquer our hearts because he's going to be the one that brings the war. With this two-edged sword, it cuts both ways. He who has an ear to hear, hear these things. But to the one who conquers, this, this is, is probably the, the, one of the more difficult ones to explain, but to the one who conquers, this commitment on the other side, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. That no one knows except. And I've, sought to, I've, I've, I've sought to summarize that by, by just these two words. Satisfaction and security for the conqueror. Satisfaction. I, I think there's so much of our lives that we're in pursuit of. Because we are dissatisfied. We are discontent with the things that Christ has given us. So why do we run after food, sacrifice to idols? Why do we run after sexual immorality? Because we're not satisfied with the gifts God has given us. Why do we run after all of these other things, all of these heart idols, the desire to be accepted by a culture, the, the, the fear of missing out what the culture has to offer? Because we're not satisfied 
And he makes reference to this hidden manna. It's a direct reference, an immediate reference back to the manna that was offered to Israel in the desert. And what did they do after eating the manna the first time? It was great. Oh, it tasted almost like honey on their lips. But what did they do? Gosh, I wish I had some meat. Do you, you take us out here to starve to death? Like, this is all we get? Where's our meat? I need protein. He's promised a food to eat that satisfies. And what is that food? He himself said, I am the bread of life. And he who eats of this bread will never thirst or hunger again. He's a bread that doesn't just quench our hunger, but quenches our thirst. I mean, think about that. How, how, how shocking that statement is that bread actually usually makes us thirsty, right? Like, I need to, I'm going to choke on that. I need to go up a water to, to get it down. No, he's every ounce of our desire will be satisfied. Food to eat that satisfies the desires of our soul. And security. Security in this new identity. A, a name that no one knows and no one can take from you. And there's so much conjecture about what this white stone is with the name written on it and what it means. And there's like 12 or 13. I know a big number of different guesses about what it might be. Again, this is one of those places that I would just suggest if anybody tells you this is exactly what it is, they're probably wrong. Well, no, they may not be wrong, but they, how they know exactly what it is, I can't tell you because nobody knows exactly what it is. But it seems, in my opinion, it seems that this is a a verdict of innocent, a verdict of acceptance. And so the idea would be that in a trial, a person would be given a white stone if they were innocent or a black stone if they were guilty. It seems, it's my opinion, that the, the one that makes the most sense in light of all that's happening is that Jesus is saying, I'm going to call you righteous. You are going to mirror my righteousness. You reflect who I am. And I take that because later in the letter, he is going to, Revelation 1.5, first he's, he's identifying Antipas, the faithful witness, the one who lived so well he had to die because of it, as a faithful witness. But then also in Revelation 19.12, let me just read it to you. I don't think the verse is on the screen behind me. Again, in reference to himself, it says, in reference to Jesus, it says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. It's the same imagery that's from chapter 1. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is giving you a name that's just like his name. That no one knows but you. There's a reflection of Christ in this. Now I think at the heart of this, this whole thing, this whole letter, the struggle is not. The struggle is not that these people didn't believe the gospel. That they weren't willing to stand in light of the gospel. And even endure some hardship for the name of Christ. I think it's clear that they were willing to. But there were some among them who had become to look more like the world than the one who'd saved them. So, brothers and sisters, hear me. Hear this, a faithful witness, a witness that we're all called to, a faithful witness must be ready to die well and must also endure to live well. Live in such a way that it may actually require our life. Avoiding the stumbling blocks of cultural compromise inspired by false teachers because there's only one that has the truth. His name is Jesus. He's come and he's made it known. He's called us to live in light of it every day. Let's pray.